Starting something new can be fun, but getting those early customers can be nerve-wracking. In this episode, we talk about the three main ways you can close deals in the beginning. Selling to people you know, spreading the word through marketing, or conducting cold outreach. We also talk about a whole new way to get in touch with us about the show. Welcome to the practical podcast for technical people who want to start their own company. From founding to building your business, we're here to help. I'm Sean Hemel. And I'm Harris Kenny. This is the Hello Blink Show. Sean, how's it going? Not too bad. How are you doing, Harris? You know, I'm excited. I'm really happy with how getting the show out has been going. We've got, at the time of recording this, we've got listeners in five countries and we've got people subscribing and listening and commenting on Twitter. And it's just crazy because we've been working on this for a couple months and now it's not just sort of in our minds or in our shared documents and project software, but it's actually out in the world. So that's pretty fun. It's been a pretty fun week. Yeah, and I want to say thank you to all the guests who have been on the show so far. They've been both super helpful in giving us some content and chatting with us and sharing their insights. And they've also been really helpful for sharing the show, some of our early adopters, if you will. So we say, hey, can you share the show? And they've been great about saying, hey, I've been on this new podcast and they share it. So thank you so much to the guests who have helped us out so far. Absolutely. Yeah, I think, you know, we have our own stories, but hearing and learning from the guests that we've been on so far and the guests that we're looking forward to talk to talking to, I think that's going to make the show really fun for other listeners. And I think also just for us, I mean, listening to Kitty talk about her supply chain challenges and how the fashion industry works. I mean, that statistic about 30% of garments, you know, made never being sold and Mohib talking about the challenges of engaging with developers, you know, they've just got some really amazing experience that like, I don't know about either of those things. So I learned a lot from both of them. <laughs> yeah. And then Jonathan on the last episode shared about getting early customers because he was creating a hardware project or a hardware product. And I think that's going to tie in nicely to what we talk about today. Absolutely. Before we jump into that, is there anything new that you're working on? Uh, what's got your attention lately? I've seen some, some of your videos on social media that I think are pretty awesome. So <laughs> I'd love to hear what you're working on right now. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Literally two minutes before the show, as we were getting on this, I'm in the middle of training a neural network. I'm knees deep into learning this machine learning stuff. I'm trying to get wake words going. So if you check out my personal Twitter page, I've got a project that I'm working on for videos for DigiKey and it's just basic wake word, right? I say, you know, your favorite Alexa and she does a thing, that's your wake word. So I'm just using the Google speech commands data set, trying to train one of the words in there. So I'm just using stop. One of the projects I did real quickly is just to load that onto a Raspberry Pi. It listens for whenever some, someone says stop and you can use it to like shut down a big piece of equipment. So this could be a secondary emergency stop button for industrial safety, just a new way to look at it. Of course, I wouldn't use it solely on its own, just instead of an emergency stop button, but it could be a secondary option if somebody say can't reach the stop button on a lot of this equipment. So I've got my Bantam tools behind me and I hooked it up to that with a relay. And so you just say stop and the whole thing just completely shuts down. So that's been a lot of fun, but I'm now trying to get onto a microcontroller, which is a whole new set of problems. And this goes back to a lot of the stuff I learned in undergraduate where I took these 
DSP classes and it was moving from, you know, you, you've got like big floating point, you can do as many operations as you want because people train these train filters or excuse me, create filters for DSP on MATLAB on their big computers or servers and they go, oh, hey, look, this, you know, this, this crazy 20th order filter works so well and then you move it to something real like a microcontroller and you just don't have the memory or processing power. And I think we're approaching that now with machine learning because I'm running up against the same things, right? I've got to have this, you know, 200 by 200 spectrogram, which is essentially an image being fed into this machine learning algorithm, into this inference engine. And I run out of space on this, you know, 32-bit microcontroller that I'm using. Just like half the space is gone just holding this, much less trying to, or excuse me, that's all in RAM. And then talk about my flash storage. I've got, you know, only people say like, oh, you know, this chip you're working with, it has 256 kilobytes of, of flash space. That's so much. I'm like, yeah, but wait till you try to learn, load a neural network on there and see what happens. You know, half of that disappears. So it's trying to get that model as small as possible and make as few trade-offs and accuracy. And that's where a lot of the fun comes in and playing with these. Um, so one of the things I'm doing right now is trying to reduce the size of how this data is stored. So I'm doing everything in either floating point or like 16-bit fixed or excuse me, 16-bit fixed point values. And that's working decently well, but I'm like, can I get it to 8-bit values? And I'm losing 2 to 3% accuracy, which isn't bad, but it's dipping just below that 95% accuracy. And I really wanted to get up to like 95, 96% accuracy on recognizing this wake word. So, you know, you start talking about quantization errors and things like, like subtle noises you might make, like the S in stop is so low on your spectrogram from that FFT that when you convert to an 8-bit value, it just is completely obliterated. So it's just a value of zero, and that doesn't help with the recognition engine at all. So I'm trying to figure out other techniques and tricks to keep my accuracy while also <laughs> reducing my space. And we're down in the weeds because I'm, I'm looking at TensorFlow example code on GitHub to try to figure out what they're doing and if I can replicate something close to that or even tweak what they've been doing. So that's what I've been up to. It's been a lot of fun, but a lot of hair pulling. What about you, Harris? You're full mad scientist as you're working on this project. <laughs> I haven't blown anything up yet or created a laser, so <laughs> there is that. <laughs> well, I've been working on some interesting conversations recently around outbound outreach and starting new conversations. I did a workshop with um, Bank of the West and uh, some of the account management management folks there. Uh, you know, these are folks who basically work with small businesses, uh, revenue of you know one to fifty million, and you know these are good salespeople, experienced salespeople. Um, what, what we were talking about is basically what sort of I've been learning on the you know, the frontier really of what these new companies are working on, what new outreach methods are available and, and just sort of le trying to share lessons from small, really nimble organizations, maybe owner or founder run organizations on how they are getting conversations started and seeing if like some of those lessons apply within a bigger organization. And so it was a really fun workshop. It was a really fun conversation. I was able to distill down a lot of lessons learned you know, about um, doing outreach and starting those conversations. And we'll touch on that a little bit later today as, as a method of getting those early customers. Um, and I've got a, a client where we're doing that right now. You know, most of the time I find that clients have a lot of leads or they have a lot of customers and there's a lot of value in just talking to them uh, before going out and starting new things. Uh, but this client I have right now and this talk I just gave at Bank of the West, they were examples where they really just do need to start more conversations. 
they don't have too many leads. They need to get connected with new people. Um, so, you know, there's structure around how do those conversations go, capturing interest, creating value, uh, and then really making it easy for people to like opt in and opt out. And we can do more on that maybe in a full episode later, but I've really been in that headspace right now and thinking about how do you do that type of outreach in a way that's respectful of the recipient in a way that they actually appreciate it. Um, and the short story there is that focusing a lot on intentionality and being deliberate, doing a lot of research and, and really thinking about each message you send Whereas a lot of what's happening in the marketing and sales space is around automation and people are feeling that mass communication, mass emails, and they sort of are recoiling and pulling away from that. And so in this case, there's a lot of value in being individual in that outreach and spending a little more time. But it's not the old school boiler room sales thing where you're, you know, constantly on the phone and always be closing and all of that stuff. It's, it's a lot more about empathy and trying to understand where that prospect is at and positioning everything, you know, from that perspective, instead of here's about me, here's about my product. Do you want to talk to me? Here's when I'm available. So anyway, that's, that's definitely been an interesting uh, change of pace recently and, and an interesting focus. So I do have a question and it's, I don't want to sidetrack too much, but I hope this question acts as kind of a representative set of what we're about to talk about on the large scale of getting new customers. I saw your post with the pictures of you presenting at Bank of the West and they looked great. You know, normal presentation, there's, you know, what, two dozen people in that room and you have, and this is the case for almost every presentation where you've got like most of the people like, okay, I'm paying attention. I'm supposed to be supposed to be here and this is good. I'm interested in what is Harris talking about. And there's like a couple of people like nodding off in the back, right? That's just like every presentation has that unless you're like, unless you're like dancing around on stage and doing something crazy. So what, what techniques do you employ to get those people interested? Either the people trying nodding off, are there certain things you can do for that? Or are there things you can do to like, okay, I only really need to reach the people who matter and what's important there for you? Does that make sense? Like, it, it does how, do you, make how sense. do you get yeah. those people interested? Yeah, it does make sense. It's a good question. So, you know, I've managed sales teams before and it's challenging when they're like, hey, we've got a training for sales or we've got this monthly meeting HR is going to talk for an hour, IT is going to talk for 30 minutes, and your manager is going to talk for 30 minutes, and then maybe we have a guest speaker come in and talk about something. And so it can be tough, and I was right before lunch, and so you've got that you know blood sugar thing that you're combating. Um, so I know those types of environments can be challenging. I think you know realistically, you're probably not going to get every person in the room every time. I think it is about focusing on the people who are just open to learning about you're open to learning something new. Um, you know, in the case of what we were talking about, we had a more interactive segment where we had people pulling up their LinkedIn or their emails and they were talking and they were sharing outreach messages that they've sent. And we did a little kind of active feedback where they would read it to me and I gave them some feedback about, you know, where I think they were falling a little bit short. Um, you know, one example was, you know, talking about norms around LinkedIn and someone's like, hey, I reached out and they accepted my connection. And then I followed up with them and said, hey, I, I'm connecting with people in this area. I'd like to meet with you. And that was it. And he didn't reply to me. Why not? Why did he ghost me or whatever? And uh, I was like, oh, that's a good question. Let's like talk about that. Well, like what's in it for them? They connected, they accepted the connection, but why? Maybe they don't uh, think of LinkedIn the same way that you do, you know, or maybe they just are busy right now. And so what can we do to get them to want to take that meeting? You know, and, and it's, 
going from the context of like, you don't know who I am and I'm kind of bugging you to you agree that we should have a conversation that like bridging that gap, clearing that distance is hard. And uh, so there were some people in the room who were really interested in that. I think you could tell people who were spending more time trying to build up new business and trying to kind of get going in that way. Um, there were others who maybe just they're not as focused on that or maybe they've got a full pipeline. And so, you know, I think the, the main gist of the conversation was for those people who are trying to start new things. And, and those are the ones who you, you, I, I try to get engaged, you know, and, and they were giving examples and we we're going back and forth. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's how I thought about it for that talk. You bring up a really good point in the idea of interaction. So, you know, getting people engaged to do something interactive and having them do something, whether that's writing, working with their teammates, whatever. And I think, you know, when you're, start, when you're talking about a few dozen people in a room, that's not too bad to do. But the idea of interacting also brings up a good point of, you know, I'm, I'm trying to look at my library because I don't remember exactly what book it is. It's one of the influence books, um, which I will put in the show notes, but they talk about this idea that one of the ways to get customers, right? We're going to get into getting early customers, and one of the ways to do that is to have somebody do something for you. It seems super counterintuitive rather than like, oh, I do something for you and you do something for me, but it's the other way around. Get them to do a little something because the more time they invest, the more they're going to be invested in whatever it is you're doing, if that makes sense. And Video games these days are designed around this principle because they give you, you know, oh, you hit that first level really short and then you notice like stuff comes longer and longer because you've invested short amounts of time and you get these little hits of like, oh, that was cool. I invested this time and I got this reward. I hit the new level. I got new skills. I got new items. But as I keep playing, that time is longer and longer until they have you fully hooked and they, they can just throw garbage at you. Not I'm saying all video games are garbage, but <laughs> the idea is there, right? You get these little, little wins along the way, and as you invest time, you become more invested in whatever it is. So I think that's a good, good idea to keep in mind as you're trying to create new value for customers. Get them to do something. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's right. I mean, what you want is you want people who are interested in what you're offering. You don't want to feel like you are twisting their arm and forcing them to hear your pitch. You know, the goal of getting to a meeting or a phone call with them, that's just a means to an end. And if you are forcing them to answer, you know, by just being really pushy, at some point the gig is going to be up. But if you can articulate something in a way where they are willing to take an action to commit, then you match them. Uh, you're more likely to be moving down a path where they might really be interested in what you're talking about, right? And ultimately, the goal is to get those customers to close those deals. It's not just to be busy or to have lots of calls. And so that like metric hacking sort of that you see sometimes in bigger sales organizations where people are just focused on booking meetings and then the meetings aren't going anywhere, but they're hitting their numbers. So it doesn't, you know, so they're not worried about it. Um, so I think, yeah, the idea of getting the, the prospective customer to, to do something, to raise their hand really deliberately, I think, that's a, I think that's very smart. I think there's definitely something to that. It's kind of like a quality over quantity thing. You're saying, look, like, I think this is a good fit for you, but I, I'd like you to demonstrate that you agree. Otherwise, I don't want to waste your time because there are other people who I could potentially be helping or you know, other people who might want this product instead. Um, so you know, it's, I don't know if playing hard to get is the right example but it's you want to give them an opportunity to raise their hand instead of just like kind of coming up to them and being like do you want this do you want this can i help you <laughs> yeah that gets a little overbearing yeah um, yeah i i i think in in your line of business 
so, you know, consulting, I'm assuming usually has that initial, like what a sales meeting goes like. And it's something similar with Bank of the West, where it's like, you've got to sit in a room and present to people. And I think that's a good trick to keep in mind as far as like, you know, getting them to do something interactive, like you said. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So we're going to jump in here. We, I want to take a step back. So this is a practical podcast. So I want to start with a really simple, practical note, and then we can jump into different ways to get those early customers. Uh, the first really basic thing though, is that you have to be ready to accept transactions. So let's assume you're going to get a customer when they say, yes, you need to be ready to actually accept payment. So I know this is like a small thing, but I thought it'd be worth saying up front. So if you're in the United States, you need to register with an EIN, get a bank account, uh, you know, maybe have some way of accepting payment processing, whether you're doing credit cards or check or whatever. But I think as soon as you have this in mind that you want to go get a customer, I think you want to get that infrastructure in place first because you never know when that deal might come through or that purchase might come through. So you got to be ready from the moment you decide you might want to go sell something. Uh, you got to be ready for that transaction happening because you don't want to be scrambling at the last minute to give them a chance to, to pay because A, that would be bad to lose the sale if they got a bad impression and B, you know, I think when you get that transaction in and it hits the bank account, you get that sort of dopamine rush and you, it, it's fun. So take care of the boring thing first, be ready to accept transactions first. I know that sounds very basic, but I do think that's important. <laughs> uh, yes. And I do want to say that I highly, highly, highly advise anybody looking to make any sort of transactions outside of it being a hobby, because that's how you can report that on the on your tax forms. But if you're looking to make a, you know, somewhat of a remote business, go through the hard work of setting up an LLC or a C Corp or an S Corp or whatever it is. I, I don't recommend DBAs, but you can. Um, I recommend at the very least an LLC because that gives you some some separation between, you know, if, you're liable for something that gives you some separation there. Um, so they, the worst they can do is go after your company. So if you're gonna, especially if, if you're selling a product, um, don't just be like, hey, send me PayPal and I'm gonna send you this product, right? That might work on Etsy as like a hobby, but if you're looking to do this as a business, um, go through that boring stuff, get your EIN, get your LLC set up. Um, I think of all of those, getting the bank to give me a business account was the worst. Like, be prepared to spend a few hours in person at a bank filling out gobs of forms. It's awful, but it's worth it. Yeah, and credit unions might be, you know, easier if you're, if you're banking with a credit union. I'm sure that there are, you know, some different options. I feel like there's a lot of financial services options that are coming out that are making things a little bit easier. So do some research, but you, you, you really want it to be separate, especially if it's going to be a different entity. You don't want to have that commingling of funds. You want it to be really clear what money is coming into your business versus what money is going into your, your personal accounts. And, you know, just a personal piece of advice. I mean, I personally do not worry about paying transaction fees. I would rather it be easy for my customers to pay me. And so, you know, I'm not worried about trying to like force them to set up ACH or trying to force them to like mail me a check. I'm okay, you know, using credit card payment processing. And it, my goal then is to articulate enough value that I can charge enough that those fees aren't a big deal, right? But I don't wanna be spending time like shuffling paper around or making them spend time shuffle paper around. Um, I had some clients who have used like a bill.com, which is nice. It's nice to keep the money and not get those fees, but in the grand scheme of things, I think I think it's worth trying to spend that mental energy focusing on value and focusing on customers and not worrying about like 
PayPal taking some sort of small percent here or Square or you know QuickBooks transactions or whatever it may be. I, I agree, but only in, say, our lines of businesses, right? You and I deal with larger customers where it's like, oh, they're going to pay you once a month and we're dealing with you know, anything between one and maybe 10 customers if you're doing freelancer consulting. And yeah, like let them take the $20 fee or the small percentage and it's not, not a big deal. But somebody who's, say, maybe making a piece of hardware that they want to sell, um, that may become a bigger deal because you start talking about cutting into your margins for that product. So I would keep that in mind, but your whatever it is, make it easy to buy for your for your customers, right? Um, so, you know, I think Square takes a very small percentage. PayPal takes a very small percentage. Setting that up, if you're going to be selling a physical product or some kind of, you know, a content service, like, say, an online class, um, it does behoove you to use those online services, um, whatever that is. Um, these days, customers expect you'd be able to, like, three buttons and you can buy a thing. You know, look at Amazon as your gold standard. And if you're, if it takes two more buttons than to buy something on Amazon, you're probably doing it wrong. <laughs> you're right. And in an e-commerce perspective, it is different, right? You Maybe you're worried uh, a little bit more about the rates because they're eating into margin, but maybe you're also more focused on integration. Like, does it integrate with Shopify or something like that? So maybe you're sort of how you're thinking about the features uh, changes, or maybe you're worried about fraud prevention or international shipping or something like that. So it's a good point uh, on the services side, very different than shipping a physical product. Yeah. And then also for like my clients, um, I don't know how it is for you, but for my clients, it's, it's, I have to do whatever their system is, right? I have some clients that are like, we will only write you checks. And then I've had some that are like, well, we can do PayPal. And some that are like, we will only deposit directly to your bank statement or to your bank account. I'm like, I don't know. I just have to play with whatever my clients want. Um, rarely, rarely do they come out and be like, uh, how do you want to get paid? Usually it's like, this is what we do. I'm like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> but that's, that's from a freelance perspective, working individually with some larger companies. You, you kind of have to play by their rules. Totally. Yeah, I've got three different options and uh, all three have, between those three, I've been good. Uh, for, across different things. But yeah, I know what you mean. <laughs> it definitely yeah. is like, well, what do they want? Because they're the one writing the check. Yeah, All right, so you, yeah, got exactly. your, you got your technical stuff and we could have a, maybe another episode talking about lawyers or talking about the details of different corporate entities. But let's just say you've got your entity, you've got your bank account, your EIN or your equivalent to an EIN if you're outside of the United States and your payment processing. And now you're ready to actually go get those customers. Uh, the number one way where I personally got my first customers and you know Sean you can talk about your experience here and just in general I think the most likely place that you're going to get a customer is from somebody you currently know or someone who you know someone who knows someone you know right like a first or a second degree connection I think that is most likely going to be the place where you get that first transaction that first customer order yeah do you want me to get into my story about how I got my first customers. I'm... I think it's a good one. I would love to hear it again. <laughs> All right. So this this is something that I started doing, um, not not with SparkFun, um, but while I was working while I was working with SparkFun. Um, SparkFun used to go to a ton of events. I think they go to few now. Um, you know, there's no more Maker Fair to go to, unfortunately, uh, not the big ones at least. So we'd go to maker fairs, you know, whether they're locally or the big ones, and I kept running into these guys from DigiKey over and over and over again because they go to a lot of events. DigiKey's a large corporation. Um, they've got this 
this you know fairly small cadre of people that they send out to these events. Um, they're always fun to chat with, talk about what's coming up. They wanted to know what's good on the SparkFun side. We wanted to know if they had any good sensors. So I just you know built a rapport with them, and quickly they became one of those somebody I knew, right? Somebody I know uh, situations, and eventually I chatting with them one day in an event. I mean, this is all in person. So in person is huge here. And they were like, look, you know, if, if you ever wanted to, we'd love to have you do videos. I'm like, all right, let me think about that. So I sat on it for a little bit and I was like, you know what? I think this is ultimately where I want to go with this idea. And this was a number of years ago. I think this was like 2016, 2017. Um, and I, you know, I, I basically, or excuse me, I told them that I was looking at doing outside work. They said, we'd love to have you do videos. So it was this kind of mutual thing of like, we're looking for more content. I'm doing freelance stuff on the side. And so they said, great. Well, you know, I cleared it with SparkFun. You know, if you're currently working at a company, make sure you have no conflicts. A lot of people sign these technology clauses that says you cannot develop or do anything while you work for us, even if it's outside of work. Um, SparkFun was super awesome and let us pursue outside opportunities. So just, I, I'm always upfront with my current employer um, to let them know if I'm pursuing outside stuff and I'm, I don't wanna violate anything because that's how you get sued, fired and whatnot. So just be aware of what you're, you know, what you signed joining your company. So, you know, that I created a set of 10 episodes. I created the intro to KeyCAD, which did very well. So as soon as I decided to quit SparkFun and go full-time freelance, they became my first customer. They were the first to go, we would love more content from you because I think I did a good job on that first set and built a good rapport with them. So that's how I got my first customer. It was literally somebody I met at a conference. So for me, marketing, marketing myself is going to these conferences, right? I can do social media, I can do all of this, but the way I get customers is a lot of face-to-face -face interactions. Um, but that's for me on a freelance side, not just doing you know, freelance gigs here and there, but like trying to create sustainable relationships with these businesses to help them with content. Absolutely. And one of the types of agreements also in particular, you want to be careful about is like non-competes. Sometimes mm. businesses will have like industry or competitor restrictions and, you know, you might have to wait it out. If you've got an idea that you're really excited about, you might have to leave your job and wait it out for like one to two years before you can get going uh, sort of, and be clear. I mean, that's actually the story of Zoom. Uh, the founder, Eric, he had been at Cisco and uh, basically they he had lots of ideas for where he wanted to take that product and they didn't really see the value or the need. So he left, waited for two years and then started Zoom and it's obviously a very successful company. Um, so, you know, you, you definitely might need to talk to an attorney um, if it's something like where there's like that industry overlap in terms of what you're doing and where you're at right now. Um, but that's addressable. That's not, you know, game over necessarily. Um, but if you have that bug to do something on your own, maybe you also do something else first. You don't necessarily have to do the like first idea that's in your mind. Maybe you do something that doesn't compete or doesn't conflict. Um, and so, yeah, that's an interesting example you have of DigiKey because they were really partners. It was a supplier partner that you'd worked with in creating content. Uh, sometimes it's like that. Sometimes you have other types of relationships through people you know, like a former colleague. Uh, maybe, you know, I've got a couple of, actually lots of examples of these. I mean, I had a colleague who we had been very close. He left the organization on good terms and, and we continued to keep in touch. He had been interviewing for different jobs and one of the places he had interviewed reached back out and they, I basically, I was like, hey, could you get me connected with them? Um, I'm going out, out on my own and that place you had been interviewing 
and then he was like almost accepted the job. It seems like a really interesting company. I would love to connect with that person who's like their head of marketing just to have a conversation if you don't mind. And I talked to them, we connected. There wasn't an opportunity for work together, but we had a good chat. And, uh, and that head of marketing, a couple months later, reached back out to me and said, hey, we're looking to grow. Uh, do you know anybody who might fit this need? And I referred a buddy who got like a, a nice sized five-figure project with them through that, right? So that's a case where uh, it was a former colleague who I was on good terms with. We had been in touch about another job he had been interviewing for. I connected them and then I was able to refer that to someone else. Um, another example of someone who, former colleague who had left the company, um, they not on great terms uh, from, uh, it, was, it was a tough situation, but they were a really good person and a really hard worker. And so I reached out after and I was like, hey, like that sucked. I'm really sorry that happened, but like I would love to keep in touch. Like I think you're really smart and I really enjoyed our conversations. And you know, years later, literally years later, that person reached back out to me and was looking for help with a project. And I was able to refer someone who got, again, like a pretty good five-figure contract with them. And so, you know, sometimes it's suppliers, but other times it's current people you're actually working with in your current job. And maybe they're in your department, but maybe they're in other departments. And, you know, being intentional about connecting with different people in your organization, asking them about their job and what they're doing, um, you know, just kind of being curious. You never know who you might be able to help, what opportunities might come up, but you have to kind of put yourself out there. And uh, it's, I guess, important overall to not just think of your current colleagues, if you're in a full-time employment position, not to just think of them as like coworkers that you complain to about like your current job or your current boss. Um, you know, they are obviously individuals that will go on to do other interesting things and you never know what might come about. I mean, Sean, we were sort of counterparts at different companies, that's how we connected in the first place, uh, actually, and now we're doing this podcast years later. So think of your network very broadly, and you know, maybe it's someone in accounting who you don't work with a lot, or maybe it's someone in purchasing who you don't work with a lot. Uh, I think just fundamentally being curious can lead to some interesting things that if you like wrote it down on paper, you wouldn't have expected it, but then it can come about anyway. Yeah, and I, I think you know, I'm a super introvert. I, I spend 95% of my time in my own house, and I don't want to go outside and deal with people most of the time. Um, but I think there's something to be said for everybody can benefit, especially, pe especially people who want to start their own business. They can benefit from working on your social skills, just learning how to interact with people better. It, you know, if you're a super introvert, that might be scary and daunting, or just you don't want to, but it can help tremendously in the business world, just learning how to work and talk to people and just build basic relationships. Um, you know, you don't have to be this party goer, going to every conference, just target the ones that you think are good, learn how to do some basic socializing, turn it on while you're there and recharge and do what you need, um, right? If that means going back to your room, which, which is what I do, right? I go to a conference, I go back to my room, I recharge, and then it's like, okay, if I, you know, I find that going to the dinners outside of conferences um, to be sometimes the most beneficial. So sometimes I'll skip half the conference so I can go to the after events and then I always like, okay, I'm done at midnight. I'm not gonna stay and party and drink because that's gonna be detrimental to me trying to network and build this re build relationships with people. So I'm very regimented about when I go to these conferences. So I employ social skills even if I'm not you know, a complete extrovert. So I think that's super important, especially for making contacts in like consulting and freelancing. If you want small, or excuse me, a low number of high value contracts, I think that's very important. If you are looking to do sell a product or a service, right? If you're looking to, you know, think think I'm gonna build this hardware device and sell it on whatever site you want to, right? 
and you know I'll try to get into SparkFun or or sell it through a, 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 a Tindy or one of these places. And I think that you know we go back to what we talked to Jonathan about, and he the very his very first customers were his friends. He he thought about like oh I've got these engineering friends, and he just sent them devices. And even if they didn't pay him in money, they paid him in advice. They said, you need to fix this and tweak this. And that was crucial in creating his minimum viable product. So his first customers were his friends, just like you're saying. So I think it's important to keep that in mind. Absolutely. And if you haven't heard that episode, go back in your feed. It's the last episode, episode five, uh, with Jonathan Giorgino at Bino Electronics. It's a really, really interesting conversation. And you know, I think Jonathan fits that profile as well. I mean, he's an engineer. He's definitely not the kind of person that's going to parties all the time. And he's busy. He's got a family. He's got a life. But, you know, you if you're going to go out and start something new for yourself, you're going to have to put yourself out there. Sort of fundamentally, especially in early days, people might be trying it out or thinking about working with you just because of who you are and because they know you. And so you might as well take advantage of it. You might as well leverage leverage who you are in what you're doing because... Otherwise, you're just like a random person, and it's going to be hard to convince someone, especially if you don't have a product yet. <laughs> so it's going to be hard to convince them to, to buy it or try it out. And But that's just one bucket. I think it's worth spending the most time talking about that because I think it's the most common. But it's not the only way to get early customers, obviously. Uh, you can also do more traditional like marketing and PR to spread the word and get the word out. Um, I think there's a lot of examples of really successful businesses that start with just a creator, a developer, sharing on a blog, sharing on social media, sharing on GitHub, and maybe posting to things like Hacker News about what they're working on. You know, maybe it's a tutorial on Hackster and basically just getting the word out that way by sharing what you're doing. And, and this really goes to the content marketing conversation that we had a few episodes ago where that's a way to just share what you're doing and people see it and then they're gonna follow up and ask, hey, is this available for sale? Where did you get these parts? How did you do this? Could you make something like that for me? And I think it's funny, Sean, you're sort of accidentally having this happen with your current project. You said somebody was reaching out to you about industrial safety equipment based on some of the content that you're making right now. You're accidentally starting a business, another one. Yeah, I mean, and this this isn't a, a product that I, I had ever intend, intended to take to market. And it was the idea of like, oh, you know, I can yell stop at a piece of industrial equipment and it literally stops. Um, you know, there's there's obviously some issues that need to be worked out, right? If, so, if I'm just having a basic conversation with you and I'm like, oh yeah, stop doing that. And the whole, like half the, you know, half your production line shuts down because I made a joke. That's, you know, obviously not good. So you know, maybe it's a different wake word, maybe it's something else. So, you know, there's a lot of stuff that needs to go in here. This is just like, oh, I took this idea that like, oh, I can say stop to a Raspberry Pi and it flashes a light to like, oh, I can just use that to switch a relay and how can that be useful? Oh, we can just shut off equipment. So that was the idea. It's just this basic idea. I made a quick, you know, it's a piece of one longer video I have for DigiKey and I put it on social media. Um, I didn't even get to read the full message because we were just about to start recording this podcast. Like it just popped up on my LinkedIn feed of somebody saying like, hey, this is super interesting for industrial safety. And I didn't get to read the full message because we started recording. But right, like that's that's how some of it goes. Like you just start creating projects and that's the beginnings of 
excuse me, that is content marketing, right? I start creating not necessarily projects, but whatever, right? It could be concepts, it could be news, it could be projects, it could be, you know, teaching people. Um, that's my forte is, is I go into with the mindset of like, how can I teach people new skills? And from that, people start getting interested in maybe something you have. So, you know, a way for me to monetize potentially a product is, you know, people know me as, you know, the bowtie guy on DigiKey and SparkFun and now some of the Microsoft MakeCode stuff. Uh, that teaches them things. So, you know, I could potentially make a an online class. So I've got one on Udemy, um, but that seems to be a different market. But if I created stuff more in line with what I was doing, I could potentially create a product based on what I have created for content. And I don't mean like steal all my DigiKey stuff and monetize it because that goes against everything I signed for their contract because they own that, but saying like, oh, people are interested in this microcontroller, so maybe I consider doing a separate set of content as a class around this microcontroller and monetizing that. So that I've created an audience, I know what they're into, I they like it, and then I can monetize that. Or maybe it's like, oh, there's no real good starter board for this microcontroller. Maybe I should make one and sell it, right? I considered doing that with the STM32, but it was, you know, I've got prototypes sitting in my bins behind me, but that was a complete waste because ST already has a good number of great starter boards already out there. And there's some really cheap knockoff ones that like I can't compete with that. So I'm just gonna use it, which is where I would consider doing content instead of hardware for it. So that's what you have to keep in mind as you're doing this content marketing and you're getting feedback from customers like, hey, what's doing well with number of views? What are people asking about? Do you have people reaching out being like, I would buy that? That should be an indicator for you. <laughs> exactly. That meme, you know, shut up and take my money. <laughs> when people post that, you know you've got a winner. Exactly. <laughs> I've not had it yet, so we'll see. Well, maybe not that directly, but more or less, right? So I think there's, so creating content again, but this goes back to the idea of contacting people you know. If you're creating content, you're putting it out there, you are making yourself vulnerable. You are putting something on the internet and from time to time, people are critical of other people on the internet. <laughs> That's a nice way of putting it. <laughs> so you're opening yourself up to that potentially. Um, but if you don't do it, you know, you can be certain that nothing will happen. If you don't open yourself up to that potential criticism, you can be certain that no one will see your idea, no one will see your project, and no one will be mean to you, but no one will be interested either. And it's the same thing when you're asking someone you've worked with for an introduction in the past, or you reach out to a former colleague who maybe you knew in accounting, and you say, hey, I'm starting my own business. I, apparently I have to pay taxes. Can you help connect me with a CPA with my taxes and things like that? It's this sort of fundamental exercise in vulnerability, but if you're willing to do it, you can create really interesting opportunities. Content is, I think, a safer way to do it because there is a little bit more of a culture of sharing, like, hey, here's what I learned and putting it on a blog. I think that maybe is a good place for someone who is a little nervous about this to start because it doesn't feel as personally vulnerable as saying to another person, like, hey, can you help me with this? Would you like to buy this from me? And the internet's a big place. There's a lot of people interested. I mean, we have, for the show, a discussion that we talked about, just an offhand remark, where we talked about the community here in Colorado and we talked about uh, SolderWorks, which is this really neat hardware incubator space and they've got startups there and they do these engineering services. And we just mentioned that I had attended an event there and had a lot of fun, mentioned it in the Hello Blink show. And they just tweeted back at us, uh, you know, SolderWorks tweeted back at us that they, they heard the mention in the show, they appreciated it and they'd love to see us, you know, back in the space sometime soon. And people are going to hear what you're talking about if it's 
in their space. I mean, we didn't tag them. We didn't actually email them or even mention it to them. They had just caught the show and then heard that we had mentioned them. So, you know, there's something about this and, you know, you never know what's going to come up when you do it. So content marketing could be blogging, could be social media, could be doing a pitch to maybe an industry blog that covers what you're working on, could be posting yourself to something like Reddit or Hacker News. Um, but that's a second way to get early customers to draw them in put up a mag, uh, you know, like a magnet that might draw those folks in. Uh, and then another kind of derivative of this is doing a crowdfunding campaign, which is, can be a really good way to get the word out about your product. I mean, there's a lot of press coverage typically of crowdfunding campaigns when they get momentum, especially if you're solving a really specific problem for people. Uh, there's a few different platforms that do this and there's a few different ways to do this. I think the biggest thing I would say if you're getting early customers from crowdfunding you really want to be careful about the distinction between having them fund your research and development versus having them fund your manufacturing. You know, ideally you're able to find a way to do most, if not all the R and D on your own, because if you're getting those prospective customer dollars in on R and D, it's still speculative. And the chances I've just seen a lot of projects that never get out that way. Um, and you know, that, it's, it's not good for customers, it's not good for your reputation. It's just, it's, I think people are going into it with the best of intentions, but it's just a really hard way to do it. So the conversely getting funding for a manufacturing order, buying in bigger bulk, getting that big batch, lining up that full manufacturing run with a, with a contract manufacturer, there's like a very big difference there. So I just wanted to mention that on the subject of crowdfunding real quick. But there's a bunch of different platforms and. You know, Sean, do you want to speak to, there's lots of ways to do this. I mean, what, is, what has your, been your experience with crowdfunding? I know that there's so many different stories about it, but I'm curious what you've seen. I can tell you what I've, you know, seen from the Spark Fund perspective, what I know from talking to people. I've never run a, a crowdfunding campaign, so I can't talk from experience. But that being said, it is a good idea. You know, maybe, maybe we get a guest on here who's been through it or works for one of those um, and just, you know, kind of chat with them about what makes for a successful campaign. So, I, you know, we'll keep that in mind. That's a good one, if, especially if there's interest uh, with our listeners for learning more about crowdfunding. And it, you're right. It is an, it's almost an unfortunate state now that what crowdfunding has become is not so much to fund the development of a game, but a pre-order system. Um, every, everyone, you know, who's contributed to a Kickstarter says like, oh, I'm gonna to contribute to this, not because I want this to exist, but because I want to get this when it comes out. And I think Kickstarter initially launched with the like, hey, let's let's fund this to make this thing happen. And it might not happen. And I think Indiegogo was better about being more upfront of like, we may not deliver. And if they don't meet their goals, it's you can still keep your money. But Kickstarter was like, if you don't meet your goals and you can't deliver this, people get their money back. And so what's become the state of, of crowdfunding now is, is more of a pre-order system. So I think you're right. I think you're going to be much better off if you launch with basically prototypes in hand and you have pictures and video of it working and say, help us manufacture it, right? This is a pre-order system. So understand that that is the current state of crowdfunding. That being said, I think most people have heard of Kickstarter. That's kind of the, the, the big playground everyone wants to be in. Um, but from what I've seen, Kickstarter is mostly software and what I would call consumer electronics, right? They are pretty, they are packaged, they are, you know, you know, like like there was some good success stories of like camera gear that came in these like nifty little black boxes and you could plug them into your camera and it did all sorts of crazy stuff for you, like controlled the firmware and whatnot. Um, consumer electronics and software and art 
I think are like the big ones that you see on like Kickstarter and Indiegogo. If you are looking at developing a piece of electronics that is, you know, more or less a bare PCB with some electronics slapped to it, and that's what you're going to sell, kind of like running your own SparkFun or Adafruit, then Crowd Supply and Group Gets, I think, are your best two. Um, Crowd Supply, I think, is a little more well known, and I don't believe that they have an inventory system, so a lot of people will do like a crowd supply thing and they sell through there, or if I remember, they end up going to Tindy as the marketplace. Um, Group gets, as far as I know, still has a partnership with SparkFun. So if your project gets noted as a potential partnership, and I think you can fill out a form that says like, oh, I'm interested in chatting with SparkFun. SparkFun can look at stuff coming through Group gets and say, oh, you know, we like your project. We think that it would do well in the SparkFun storefront, and it's then a manufactured by SparkFun and sold through their site. Um, but you do a group gets uh, campaign, but I think you get less visibility on there as opposed to crowd supply. So that's kind of my understanding um, with both of those from the crowdfunding side of things, especially for hardware. Um, it's and it's really it's. I wouldn't even consider it like if you just post something on crowd supply because there's so much now like that is that is almost a de facto way of like people getting uh, interest in their device. There's a lot of noise. If you just post a campaign, I don't think you're going to go anywhere without other types of marketing or outreach efforts to get interest in whatever it is you're building. So it, I, I would consider it a funding thing, not a get initial customers uh, slash marketing thing anymore. Yeah, and we, I think that's a very important distinction too about how it's a crowded space, you know, I guess no pun intended, and how you might not succeed in that campaign, but it doesn't mean that you have a bad idea. Yeah. I mean, I've talked to a founder who had a really neat product and that they were working on and they're like, yeah, we tried crowdfunding and it didn't materialize and, you know, they were pretty discouraged and, uh, you know, that's okay. It doesn't mean that your product isn't legit. I mean, to your point, because there's so much noise in that space, it may just be more of a reflection that they hadn't done the other marketing and PR work uh, that would have made that campaign successful. It didn't mean that on its own that, that their idea was like necessarily rejected. And conversely, I've seen crowdfunding projects that made a lot of money and were very successful and the company uh, did not work out. So it's not necessarily a reflection either way. On yeah, it's really not the business. Yeah. I, I, I would view it as a way to fund a project and really a pre-order system. Like that's how I would view it as a pre-order system. Um, you're just, just because of all the noise on there, you're not going to get as many eyeballs on your particular project versus others. There's nothing to say. I mean, like the only way to do that is you make something that's viral. And in which case it's not going to go viral on that platform. It's going to go viral because you're, you know, sending it out on social media and doing other marketing. Exactly. Exactly. And then maybe there's some additional amplification that happens, but to your point, it is that other work. And so it can be a piece of the, one of the tools in the toolbox. Uh, and then the third big bucket, so we got reaching out to people you know or connections of those people. You've got marketing and PR, which is basically trying to like put the word out and draw people in, including content marketing. And then the third is cold outreach. Just reaching out to people out of the blue that you think might be interested in what you're offering. And I think this is probably the hardest for most people. It's not particularly fun, although it can be if you think of it as a game, you know, and if you try to really craft that message and, you know, spend time on it. And if you get excited when, you know, you can basically create an opportunity out of nothing, uh, which is, you know, to say an out of a cold, totally cold email, totally cold phone call or totally cold LinkedIn message. 
and this is still very much a viable way to get early customers. I mean, I talked to a company who this is how they're getting all of their business. They've got a very specific product. It's it's like what Jonathan is doing at Bino in so far as like they understand the space really well. So when they send a message to someone, they know exactly the type of organization, the job title, exactly the type of pain points that that customer is going to have. So when their message lands on that person's LinkedIn inbox, it's exactly relevant to what that person is thinking about and worrying about. It's not just this like spam message. Um, and so I think that is the key to getting cold outreach right. Um, but you can also do cold outreach in a way that's a little more fun, like going to conferences and walking up to different booths and going up to a happy hour. I mean, that's an example where you're in a room, maybe you don't know a single person and you're just sort of walking up to them cold and saying, you know, hi, I, uh, this is who I am, who are you? And then getting to know them a little bit. Um, so it's, it's a way, it's a legit way. And I think the most important thing is just kind of having that tone and that pitch right, understanding who you're talking to. The biggest drawback or the biggest shortcoming I see is that people do this and they're very inwardly focused on their product and themselves and they're not asking enough questions about the customer and understanding enough where that prospective customer is at. They're too busy talking about themselves. That's when I find cold outreach falls flat because they're like, dude, you just are interrupting me and talking about yourself. It's really weird. <laughs> you know, I don't want yeah. to, I don't know who you are. I don't know why you're talking to me about yourself. But if you interrupt someone, because that's what you're doing when you're cold contacting them, and you communicate in a way that's about them and you're articulating value for them, uh, then I think the odds of success go up a lot more. Yeah, I mean, that's, you know, your first part about it's interrupting, that's akin to, you know, you're walking by the used car sales lot and the guy comes out like, what can I do to get you in that car? And you're just like, <laughs> <laughs> Yo, I'm literally just walking by your store. Mind your own business. <laughs> yeah. Even 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 if you might be in the market for a car, it's it's kind of awful to hear sometimes. But you know, I I think you've got some good ideas about like, um, what what make sure you're coming from their perspective, right? Have a little empathy for what they might be doing. Um, do you have any good examples of what's worked for cold emails, cold calling? Yeah, well, the structure that, and so there's, there's a few different people that do really interesting work on this. There's a guy named Josh Braun, uh, who I follow on LinkedIn, who's pretty excellent. And uh, so there's, there's a lot of people who, who I, I kind of learn from. I myself, even though I work on this every day, I follow other people to try to learn from others who specialize in this type of work. Um, but the framework that I've been kind of thinking about overall has been something to capture their interest initially that is contextualized to them, you know, about, uh, you know, I work with uh, business owners in this space, helping them, uh, you know, so like in, in my example for like what I do, sometimes people are looking to make like a sales hire. And so they'll post about like looking to hire someone in sales. And so I'll start the conversation based on that. Yeah, they're looking to hire a salesperson, but um, that's not like really what they want. What they want is more sales and they want to know that they're getting revenue in the future. And so we, so it'll be typically starting something around like having an understanding of where you, what your pipeline is going to look like in the future, building tools and processes to help you grow your business. And that's sort of what I do. Next is finding some way to create value, explaining like how that works, or maybe it's sharing a white paper, sharing a blog post, sharing some fact or some information that's going to basically like you're putting a deposit down on the interaction saying, look, I'm going to, I'm going to share this with you. Uh, I think you might find it interesting. And then, uh, the third part is just like an easy opt in, easy opt out. And so what I've seen working really well is that whatever context 
you're communicating with them, whether it's a LinkedIn message or if it's an email, giving them a really easy way to say, yeah, to raise their hand, right? So instead of being like, oh, are you available on Wednesday at noon to talk at this time? Here's a link. Uh, instead, just being like, hey, if this, if this is interesting, you know, just let me know, you know, or are you interested in this? Just send me a quick reply and I can follow up with some more information. Giving, making it really easy for them because again, you're in this initial context of I'm a stranger interrupting you and you need to transport the conversation into you know somewhat of who I am and you want to talk to me. And so that's the goal is to get to that second place. Um, easy opt in and then easy opt out and, you know, making it easy for them to not be interested. Say, look, either way, I think this business that you're building is really cool. Uh, you know, I think this product you're doing is important. I think this way that you're, you know, being sustainable or being open source or whatever is neat. I'm rooting for you. Uh, whether or not I can help you with this growth that you're looking for for the business. So that they don't feel like obligated or like you're twisting their arm. I find that people tend to appreciate that because it doesn't feel like you're trying to like, you know, obligate them to respond. Like, you know that they don't owe you a response and whether they respond or not, it's not like a personal thing. It's not an emotionally charged thing. Like maybe they're just not interested and that's okay. Um, so that like type of structure I've been seeing has been working really well. I mean, we, I had a client who had a deal basically lined up. They just needed a approval. The, basically the client of theirs uses a certain project management software and that project management software is migrating from, um, a, to a new version of their API. And so the client needed to know that they could get the new API, get access to the new API in order to close this deal because they needed that new API to deliver. And so we reached out to two people that do like community engagement for them and two people in sales to, to try to start a conversation with the project management software company. And one of the salespeople replied and one of the community engagement people replied and the community engagement person that replied was able to connect us to an internal developer who basically said, yeah, here's the green light. You can do the second version of the API. You'll be okay. And they're now in the process of closing that deal. So, you know, having a 50% response rate and basically sending out four messages, getting two replies, and then getting one positive outcome um, using this structure that I was outlining earlier, I was pretty happy about that. Um, it just takes more time. That's the biggest drawback. You, you can't spray and pray and message 100 people a day using this. I mean, it could take you 30 minutes to an hour to write a single message. Um, so that's the drawback. You have to really know where you're going and why, who you're talking to and what you can offer them. Um, if you don't, you're not, it, it's not going to work. Uh, so anyway, long story long, but that would be, uh, <laughs> that would be the example that pops in my head. Yeah. I, I like the idea of, uh, this, I, the, the concept of building a, a friendship or relationship with potential clients, right? You may not get business, but it's always good to have them as somebody, you know, right. Even if it's like, you know, you know, if you're interested in chatting about this, let's, you know, let's, let's talk, let's go grab a coffee. And, you know, maybe at the end of that conversation, you can say like, Hey, I, I, you know, I might be able to help with this. Or if it's just like, no, it sounds like you guys know what you're up to. This is awesome. Let's stay in touch. And, you know, we'll just keep this going. Cause maybe in the future they come back and be like, you know what, that, that, that guy, Harris, he was really cool. Let's, you know, and we got this other guy, we know that Harris might be able to help them, right? It, it, like you start creating connections and that's how you build your network that way. So cold calling may not result in a sale. Um, you know, you're probably going to get a lot of rejections and sometimes it doesn't result in an end sale, but you know, maybe it's a good relationship with somebody that can introduce you to somebody else. So 
I, I think it's always good to go in with the mind, with the growth mindset of I'm just in it to learn more about people and what they're doing rather than I need to close, right? Get yep. away from that always be closing mindset. And the more you start building relationships, I think the better you're going to be. Absolutely. Yeah, it is about relationship building. It's about understanding that there's a person on the other side of that conversation um, who you want to try to help. And if you're coming from that place, I think you're right that all sorts of different things can come from it, even if it's not a direct deal. Maybe you can help them in some other way. Maybe you send them an article where you thought of them, you know. Um, but ultimately, if you want to be growing a business or starting a business, you need to be talking to new people, connecting with new people. And if you're not doing that, you're you better have a very strong current network. But even at some point, you're gonna tap that current network out and you're gonna to have to be connecting with new people. And so yeah. there's a lot to early customers, depends on the industry, depends on the product. But those are three main ways that I've seen work. I'm sure there are others, but that's, that's pretty much how I've seen it done. Um, and Sean, I don't know if you had anything else on this, any other early customer stories or any other tips that you're thinking about? I did wanna bring up something that I saw with SparkFun that happened a bunch of times and it's something that I unfortunately had to say no to a lot of people or or give or, or pass them along to somebody else at SparkFun. We'd go to an event and I'd be representing SparkFun, we'd be in SparkFun t-shirts, whatever, and invariably someone or several people would come up and be like, I've got this thing I made and I want SparkFun to sell it, right? Every time, right? You're trying to get into a distributor network and I get it, right? That's one way to do it. You, you cold call DigiKey, you cold call Adafruit, and you're like, I've got this cool product for you. And I would say, you know, 50, you know, I, it, I, it was above my pay grade, basically. And so there was somebody who was in charge of it. So I would, I would be like, look, let me introduce you to this person. Eventually, SparkFun put up this web portal that said, hey, you've got this idea, fill out this form. And I guarantee 99% of those just kind of went to a black hole, um, unfortunately, or they'd get rejected, whatever it is. And just because there's not that many people and SparkFun's not set up to be a dis distribution network for anybody's products. That's not what SparkFun was for. So they had to be very, very, very choosy about who got into their into their network as a resale item because SparkFun gets most of their money from creating their own items. That's just how they're set up. And what I would do is if it was if it was you know something that like I doubt this is going to be a thing, you know, even though we had the portal, once we had that portal, I would say, "Hey, go fill out this form. Good luck." Right? And that, and that was kind of like my way of just saying, like, I doubt SparkFun's going to jump on this. I don't think it's a good fit for uh, the inventory. Maybe somebody else will have them fill out the form. Um, if it's something that I was truly interested in, I think like, oh, this is SparkFun needs to jump on this, right? Um, every now and then something would come through. I knew the micro bit was one of those things when that was announced. I'm like, SparkFun needs to be on this. Um, there was also the guy who created the tiny FPGA, and I... I saw it announced and getting passed around Twitter. I'm like, this is cool. It looks like they're using some open source frameworks to do HDL um, or, or uh, a hardware description, hardware description language, if I'm getting that right. Um, I'm like, this is kind of going in the right path rather than using these big open bloated uh, vendor tools. Um, and it's just this little board. It's like 30, 40 bucks and it works on breadboards. I'm like, this is a great intro to FPGAs even though I haven't touched one in forever. Um, Met the guy who created them at, it was like one dude making them at Maker Fair, and I was just like, hey, I work for SparkFun. This is really cool. Here's my card. Can we chat? Right? And he was like, oh my God, I wanted to talk to you guys. And I'm like, and this was like, and it became on me. It became kind of a, a you know a heroic story, and I call that in a sense that like not that I'm some hero, but 
when I get back to SparkFun, I write the guy in charge of, you know, making these decisions. And I'm like, look, SparkFun really needs to get on this. And, you know, as soon as we started carrying them, like a couple of months later, boom, they sell out, right? Because so, you know, you, you gotta have kind of, for, for me, it was like this sixth sense of like, there's nothing in this space and I know there's interest in this space. So we need to pick this up and resell it, right? Or talk to this person. So if you're looking at getting it being, if you're looking at talking to distributors, um, understand that rejection is going to be probably pretty high, especially for some of these more curated sites like Adafruit and SparkFun. Um, that's just the way it is because they have very specific needs they're trying to meet. Um, but also understand, go in with this idea of like, this is where the hole in your catalog is. I think people are interested because X, Y, and Z. You know, I've seen people talking about or we're, we're trying to make this easier to use. So if you're trying to go through a distributor network and get customers that way, when you talk, when you reach out, it's basically gonna be a cold call unless you would know somebody at the distributor network or the distrib distribution company. Go in with this is, you know, I think this is gonna help your customers because X, Y, and Z. Um, that's what they're gonna wanna hear. Yeah, exactly. And making it about them, right? Those two points are really interesting. One, I see there's a hole in your catalog. Hey, I think there's a part of the market that you're not serving right now. You as a distributor, as someone who wants to sell things, and I think your customers are gonna be interested in it. That's very focused on your prospect. Yep. Right. Just on their 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 perspective as a buyer and their customers who they're serving. Um, and the other thing that I that would help a lot is if somebody was willing to do like documentation and support for the distributor, right? Like, hey, you know, send them to my site and I will do, or or you know, have them file GitHub issues on my personal site and I will handle support, right? I'm not going to put this on these SparkFun engineers to figure out how my thing exactly works and do all the nuanced debugging for it. And hey, I'll write all the getting started guides. That was tremendously helpful. Um, if you go to a distributor with that, like, hey, I will help make this easier for customers and put in the work. That helps a lot. Yes. And that I think brings up a good kind of point to end on this is that recognizing that when you're looking for early customers, you probably don't have a ton of leverage. You are probably going to be more open to doing, especially if it's like a software product, maybe changing some features or adding some features or if it's a service agreement maybe being on site more often or if it's a hardware product maybe including like an extra adapter or accessory or something like that if you're getting started and you don't have that leverage in the beginning and you really are very focused on bringing money in the door and getting started that's probably going to happen in some form or fashion in the beginning and that over time you, you know you can adapt and, and move away from that if you need to there's a difference between like a bootstrap business and a VC business where, you know, you, you, you want repeatability between your deals, but if you're bootstrapping, you can be a little more creative. If you're doing like a venture backed business and they're looking for like a solving this big total addressable market, they're not going to want a bunch of like one-offs, you know, they want something that scales, but if you're doing your own thing and it's indie, you can, I think, be a little bit more uh, open and more amenable to what you're doing and how you're delivering it in order to get those deals in. As long as you feel comfortable ethically that you can deliver on what you're promising. That's of course the like asterisk to like everything is like, you know, be a good person. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is, a, that is a good underlying assumption. Like, are you, can you competently create this thing and deliver on what you promised? Yeah, yeah we're yeah. assuming that you can do that. <laughs> yeah, we're just, that's a big <laughs> assumption. Um, if that's not the case, like watch some of Sean's tutorials or, you know, go to school, learn up on whatever it is that you need to deliver that you're doing. <laughs> if you're not a good person, I've got tutorials for you. Yeah, that's, right. no, that's not, that's not what we're saying. <laughs> that's right. Oh my gosh. Funny. <laughs> uh, so yeah, so that's the, I think that's, that's the biggest thing. And let us know what you think about this. You know, I mean, I think if you've got a business and you've got some early customers, but you don't feel like you're quite on a roll yet, 
Uh, I think a lot of this stuff is still going to apply. If you are just thinking about getting started, I think pretty much everything here is going to be something to think about. Um, let us know what's helpful. We've got a new feature that we just put on the site on helloblinkshow.com where we can have comments actually in the episodes themselves in the footer or at the very bottom of the episode pages on helloblinkshow.com. So check that out. Uh, it's a pretty cool commenting system. We'd love to hear your feedback there or tag us on Twitter at helloblinkshow. Uh, please let us know what you think about this. If this helped you close a deal or you're going to maybe refer this to someone and they close a deal, let us know. We'd love to hear that. We'd love to hear about some successes, getting early customers and some failures if some early deals that didn't work out. And so let us know. And thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. If you like what you heard, please subscribe, rate, and share the show. Let us know what you think on Twitter at Hello Blink Show. Find show notes at helloblinkshow.com. The Hello Blink Show is shared under a CC BY 4.0 license by Skull Riza LLC and Kenny Consulting Group LLC. The intro and outro music is Routine by Amin Maxwell and is shared under a CC BY 3.0 license. This song can be found at soundcloud.com slash Amin Maxwell slash routine.